Well, good morning, church family. Let me ask you a question. Sometimes we, we do this. Uh, we, maybe are there some questions come to mind implicitly. Sometimes they're explicit in our minds. But I want to ask you a question just to reflect on, to think about. If you want to take it beyond the rhetorical aspect of it and answer, go ahead. But what do you live for? What do you live for? What was it? Lord, that's right. Good. Maybe I'll answer another, ask you another question. What do you long for? What is it that you long for? What experiences bring about the greatest pleasures, the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction, maybe the greatest fulfillment in your life? What are those things that bring about that joy, that peace, that fullness? Yeah, yeah, that is a thrill, isn't it? Seeing people transform the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Maybe what I maybe another way to pose this question or questions is what is real living? What does it mean to truly live? Now, if you were to take a survey, and I know in church, oftentimes the, the Christian answers come readily to mind, right? I'm not saying they're not genuine. I'm just saying we know. This is probably how we ought to respond. But if you were to take an average survey, you know, maybe if you were to walk the streets of Port Angeles and you were to ask that question, what do you, what do you live for? What are your greatest pleasures? There's probably a whole array of answers, right? You know, some people say, man, I, I live for the Chinook season. That's a fish, by the way. I live to swing this club and get this little hole, this ball into a hole. I live to, for football. Congratulations, it has now arrived. I live for my garden. I live to, ex- to experience the backcountry, the, the mountains for hiking. I live for water sports. I mean, I live, even, I just love a good book. That brings great joy to me. If I, you know, like my ideal setting is to be like my feet propped up with a hot beverage, maybe on a cold day, but you're cozy warm and you had a book in hand and you just feel relaxed. Maybe that's your kind of your perfect picture of just true contentment and joy. I mean, it's probably different. It's subjective for everybody, no doubt. I think it's common for us to dwell on those things that bring us pleasure, right? It's very common for us to think about often and even to plan for, even to put money towards those things that ultimately bring us pleasure and joy and happiness and fulfillment in this life. Now, on one hand, we should not feel guilty about that. I mean, I know some denominations or even religions will actually say, no, you shouldn't feel joy. In fact, if you feel joy, that's outside of the will of God, but actually it's fully within the will of God. The reason we long for joy, the reason we long to experience pleasure in this life, the reason we long for satisfaction, fulfillment, is because that's how God has created us. We long for those things because God has wired us to long for those things. So it's a good thing. 
We shouldn't feel guilty whatsoever. Even Jesus himself says, for example, in John 15, he says, I have spoken these things to you. Again, speaking to his disciples. I've given you these things. I've given you the truth so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is basically saying, I want your joy to be full. I want you to be full of joy, realizing that your joy or being full of joy is when you are full of me. 1 John 1.4 says, we are writing these things to you, brothers and sisters, so that your joy may be complete. So one aspect of our joy or pleasure, satisfaction, fulfillment, whatever term you want to allude to, we ought to have this one understanding, and that is this, that joy is something that God sincerely desires for us to experience. But when we think about our joys from a more uh, surface or a horizontal perspective, like I said, if, it was, if our joy is ultimately fishing or, or football or crafting or, you know, you name it, what is it for you? The farm, what is it? Not knocking family here, but <laughs> if our joy is any one of those things, that's really good to experience. But oftentimes, what kind of happens as a result is those joys come and go, right? Joys that are horizontally experienced ebb and flow, they rise and fall. In a sense, what comes up, what goes up must come down. Fulfillment in life can fall as quickly as it is it rose for us. Those incredible feelings we had in that one moment, they seem to dissipate. They don't last. And sometimes we fight really hard to, to go, how do I, how do I craft or, or reinvent that experience that we once had, right? Like, oh man, it was so good. All the factors that I can think of, I'm gonna make sure all those factors are in place. Sometimes you can do that with a vacation, right? You go on a vacation and it was like, oh, there's this incredible time. It was so good. And you're like, oh, I gotta make sure I do that again. And so you, you maybe even go back to the same place and you go, man, it wasn't the same this time. It was good, but for some reason, it felt more memorable then than it does now, in a sense, we can't reinvent, we can't go back to those things. They were just gifts of grace by God. Joy comes and goes. All good things must come to an end, right? Does it? Is that really true? It may be our experience, but is it really true? Maybe the question I want to pose for us, or I'm going to pose for us this morning is, is it possible to experience a quality of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment that doesn't fade away? That doesn't come and go like many of our experiences. You see, God tells us that there is a source of lasting joy, of lasting pleasure, there's a, there's a source of lasting fulfillment in life. And he tells us how we attain that kind of joy, that kind of pleasure, that kind of fulfillment. You see, God makes it clear throughout the scripture, scriptures, but specifically in a theme, he says, this kind of joy that does not go away, this kind of fulfillment and, and happiness, there is a joy and happiness that doesn't fade it does last. It's, it's very fulfilling. 
And it's obtained when we live for one singular focus or one singular purpose. And that purpose is when we live for the glory of God. God says, if you want lasting joy, if you want pleasures forevermore, if you want a a, a contentment that isn't fleeting, then live for this purpose, the glory of God. In other words, genuine joy is felt when we live to draw attention to God, when we seek to when we seek after the praise of God through our lives. I'm not sure if you've noticed this or not, but when you walked into the foyer, there are two messages on the, the walls. One message on either wall. When you walk in the doors, there's one on the right, my right side, if you're walking on the right side, which says mission. That is to make disciples that make disciples. But on the left side walking in, which is now my right, it is vision. And that is to glorify God in all things and delight in him. That's the vision and that's the mission of our church. Now, granted, we didn't like manufacture those. We didn't come up with those on our own intuition or anything. We, we are really adopting those because they have been timeless in nature. Next week we will talk about our vision, our mission, but this week we are going to talk about our vision, which is to glorify God in all things and to delight in him. In fact, that is really adapted from what we call the Westminster Shorter Catechism, something that was a document, a series of affirmations, questions and affirmations that was formulated a long time ago. And the question that was posed in the, in the Westminster Catechism was this, what is the chief end of man? Meaning, what is the ultimate purpose for our lives? And the answer to that question is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the chief end of man. That's the, that's the, the ultimate purpose of what it means to be human to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the ultimate purpose of our existence, and this is why not only we were created, but this is also why we were saved. Peter even acknowledges this in 1 Peter 1.9 when he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own pleasure, possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What Peter is actually saying there is like, God didn't just create you so that you would bring glory to himself. He didn't just save you because he loved you. All those things are definitely true. But he saved you so that you would actually bring glory to him. In other words, it's not just about me, like God's like, oh man, I gotta save you and then it's done. No, he saved you for a much more eternal purpose and that eternal purpose is the glory of his name. That he might be, that he might look amazing, that he might be famous, that he might be exalted through his salvation of you. According to scripture, this is what living is all about. This is what true living is. And to live, in a, to live in existence, to live our lives in a manner that is outside of God's ordained design of us, which is the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to his name, 
is to live a life that always falls short. Is to live an existence that will never be satisfied. A life that may experience hints of joy, yes, but never lasting joy. So glorifying God in everything is foundational to our existence and it's foundational to our joy. But what in the world does that mean? If this is so important and we see it on the dripping from the pages of Scripture, what does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to live for the glory of God? Well, first, let's bring some definition, okay? Just so we're on the same page here. Glory, which is sometimes a spiritual term or a kind of a biblical term that we may have some idea of, but to glory means to just give honor, to praise, to worship, uh, to give dignity to. We do it all the time, actually. We're always glorifying something or someone, whether we realize it or not. It's another, again, another synonym would be just be to praise someone. We praise people for their accomplishments. We praise athletes for what they're able to achieve. You know, the Olympics just ended this last uh, summer, and there's many people who are winning medals, and they get the, at the very end of their accomplishment, they get to stand on this podium, and they get to be recognized. It is a form of praise. We see that other people are praised for many other accomplishments or achievements for everything they do. This is what it means to give glory or to glorify. But when we think about the glory of God, we need to understand two distinct um, aspects of God's glory. We need to understand that God's glory is first intrinsic to his nature, which means that's just who he is. And then we need to understand God's glory as ascribed glory. Let me just break those down very quickly um, so that we're, on the, again, on the same page, so there's no confusion. First of all, God's glory is intrinsic to him. This means that when we think about God's glory or his intrinsic glory, it just refers to this is who he is. It's, it's the manifestation of his attributes. I, I, I love that Exodus 33 passage when, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and the people of Israel are just hanging out at the base of Mount Sinai forever, it seems like, in their minds. And, he's, and Moses is in the presence of God and Moses asks God this question, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see how amazing you are. I want to see how awesome you are. I mean, the cloud is, there's already this kind of crazy kind of uh, thunder and lightning going on on top of the mountain. And Moses, show it to me. I want to see your amazingness. And what does God say in response? He's like, okay, I'll show you my glory. He says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, which is called the Lord. So God, in his show of glory, doesn't say, watch this, Moses. Want to see what I can do? Watch this. No, God says, you want to see my glory? I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. My faithfulness and my goodness. You see, it's intrinsic to who God is. God's intrinsic glory reveals the glory that is already his, that it already belongs to him. In other words, you and I don't give God glory. You and I can't add to God's glory. Glory for God is like wet is to water. It's just who he is. 
We can't add to his glory. So when God says glorify me, he's not asking for more glory as if his glory tank ebbs and flows depending on how much glory we give him. That's not what he's talking about. He's like, I'm already full of glory. The angels even express this in Isaiah 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God cannot be anything less than full of glory because if he was anything less than full of glory, he would be less than God. By definition then, to be full of glory is to be God. And to be God is to be full of glory. God is king, the king of glory. He is, by essence and nature, full of glory. But then there's God's ascribed glory. And what that means is that this is a glory that is declared about him to others. Because he is already full of glory within himself, then he, asks, he wants his creation, i.e., the human race, to give him the glory that is due his name. Because he's saying, hey, just acknowledge me before one another and before all men and women. Why? <laughs> because this is who I am. Paul was motivated by this in Philippians 1 when he says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul's goal in life was that Christ would be honored, that Christ would be magnified, that Christ would be exalted through him, not because he could add any more glory to him. He was already full of glory. But that he could reveal his glory. In other words, Paul and us, we are able to declare his glory. We are able to publicly testify to it and to praise his name. So when we say the chief end of man or the ultimate life, the life we have been saved to is to bring glory to God or to glorify God. This means that we are called to honor him in such a way in which the world takes notice. To glorify God is to conduct your life, to live your life in word, thought, and deed in which the world takes notice and they don't praise you they praise the one you're drawing attention to. It makes me ask the question, and as I've been reflecting all week, how often am I bringing glory to myself? And in contrast, how often am I drawing attention to God? When I leave a conversation, do people go, wow, Aaron is amazing. Or do they leave a conversation and wonder, Aaron, Aaron's Savior is amazing. The God that Aaron serves is incredible. He doesn't stop talking about him. Aaron doesn't talk about himself because he can't get enough of talking about God. To glorify God means to honor him in such a way the world takes notice. It means, as First Chronicles 16, 
for example, that says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Can you imagine if our conversations consisted of that? That we move beyond the surface and into going, tell me how amazing God has been in your life today. Tell me of his marvelous works in your life today. Or a few verses later in 1 Chronicles 16, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, and ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Again, not because he's already full of glory. We are declaring it. We're ascribing it. We're acknowledging it. We're bringing attention to it. We're honoring him. As I reflected in my own life, Aaron, what does it look like to do this personally? There's a passage that in our family devotions that Abby and I kind of came upon a couple weeks ago. I, you know, there's some verses that just kind of stick out to you that you just kind of keep chewing on. You're like, oh my goodness, I just, I can't. It's like these, it just keeps resonating in a good way. In our devotions, we read Psalm 16, which we just sung. And in Psalm 16, particularly in verse 8, King David says something pretty profound. Again, the context of Psalm 16 is this. David is in great struggle. He's in dire straits. He's, he, he is, he's, he's, he's not kicking his feet up drinking some cold lemonade on a nice hot day. He's on the run for his life. Psalm 16 and Psalm 56 all the way through Psalm 60 are all psalms of great struggle and strife. But in the midst of this difficult struggle, David reveals the secret to his contentment and his joy. And the secret to the contentment and joy for David is this, when he says in verse 8, I have set the Lord Always before me. I have set the Lord always before me. You know, the, the, he concludes that chapter in your presence, there are pleasures forevermore, right? But the reason why there are pleasures forevermore because of his presence is because David is always setting the Lord before him. He's always putting God first. He's always drawing attention to God in everything he does, in everything he thinks, in everything he acts upon. What does it mean to set the Lord always before you? It means that everything we do is done with the attention and the focus on God. It means, this, it means to, to be totally absorbed in the person of God. It's to view every circumstance as if you were looking through the eyes of God. It's to make every decision and to perform every action with, with a mind set on God. It means, in other words, to be God conscious in everything. It's what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 31 when he says, whatever you eat, Whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. To understand what Paul is speaking in that 1 Corinthians passage, he's saying in everything you do, say, or think, even the most mundane of activities like eating and drinking and taking a shower and assuming you do that and all these different things, 
from the mundane to the profound, do all to the glory of God. Or as David would say, I set the Lord always before me. That, I believe, is what it means to glorify God. When we set the Lord always before us. Now, why does this matter? Why make a big deal about one short little phrase? Say again. It does, doesn't it? I think there's some very profound reasons. Yeah, I mean, we could probably spend a whole series on why it matters, right? A couple key things that I'll just kind of bring to your attention for the sake of your own personal reflection. I think one of the reasons why we should seek the glory of God, not only is because he, not just because he commands it, that's very easy to argue apologetically. But I think a, a profound reason why we need to live and ought to live for the glory of God and the glory of his name is because God lives for the glory of his name. You realize that? That everything that God does is for the glory of his name? Even his salvation of us is for the glory of his name? I think one of the more profound uh, narrative stories that I've always, it's just really fascinating to me, is found in Exodus chapter 14. The context is God has miraculously delivered the people of Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. You know, it took 10 plagues. And finally, Pharaoh was broken to the point, he said, all right, go Israel, just leave. And of course, in this miraculous way, God supplies all their needs. He takes all the bounty, all the the booty of basically Egypt, and they start leaving into the the wilderness to a, a promised land that God has already prepared before them. And and for reasons fully known to God and not known to anybody else, God leads them to a basically a dead end. Where the people of Israel, imagine millions of people pigeonholed or trapped between the Red Sea and all of a sudden the brokenness that Pharaoh experienced, it dissipated. He, his heart was hardened again. But this was all God's plan. In fact, God even says in Exodus 14, I'm going to lead the people of Israel here and then they're going to have to turn back and literally retrace their steps. And Pharaoh's going to think, oh, they don't know where they're going. They're lost. They're confused. You know what? Enough is enough. Let's go wipe them out. The entire Egyptian army goes out to literally either wipe them out or take them back as slaves. And God says, I have planned all this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his army. And after this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so we see that's exactly what unfolds. And Israel comes to this dead end, and they start turning around, and then they're freaking out, and they don't know what to do, and they cry out to Moses, and then Moses cries out to God, and God's like, Moses, raise your staff. Lead the people across the, through a dry land, through the middle of the Red Sea, And he goes on to say again, my great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots, his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. 
Everything God does is for the glory of his name. Everything. Because he is full of glory. God created the earth. He created the universe to display his glory. That's why people are without excuse. All of God's actions, though there are always kind of sub-points, right, and there are other, other reasons and motivations, but the ultimate motivation, the ultimate reason of why God does what he does is to glorify himself, is to draw attention to himself. I think a second reason is Jesus lived for this very purpose. Jesus glorified the Father in everything. In John 12, Jesus is looking ahead about, about for what is about to take place. No one else could get it. He knew what he, he had come to do. But in John 12, we see that Jesus says this, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But, he acknowledges, for this purpose I have come to this hour. All in reference to the cross of Jesus. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. You see, even Jesus lived for that very purpose, which was to bring glory to his Father. Even in John 17, which is called the high priestly prayer, he acknowledges after his final kind of sermon to his disciples, he says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave, gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before you before the world existed. It's all about the glory of God. Even it, it's amazing that even Jesus, his entire ministry was all about bringing glory to God, bringing glory to his Father. Jesus always set the Father before him so that he could glorify him. I think a third reason is even the Holy Spirit does this. The Holy Spirit glorifies God by pointing people to Christ. In John 16, when the, Jesus says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So isn't it interesting that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all intent on glorifying the Godhead. Even God himself, the triune God, is intent on glorifying the Godhead. He, and, and, and therefore, his, as his created beings, that would be you and me, as human beings, as a human race created in the image of God, we too are called to the same purpose. You and I are called for this very purpose. So to live in a manner that is outside our created design is to live a life that is lesser than. Is to live in a way that is not as joy-filled. We may have moments of joy, yes. We may experience pleasures of, of various kinds, yes. 
but they will be fleeting. Because ultimately what God has created us for is to live for the glory of his name. Now here's, here's a perk and a fourth reason why we should do this. You see, we live for the glory of God because our joy is inextricably linked to living for God's glory. You see, David says in Psalm 16.8, I have set the Lord always before me. And then in verse 9, he goes on to say, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. When is our heart glad? When is our whole being full of rejoicing? When we always set the Lord before us. When we always set the Lord before it, it is then that we are filled with joy. Because when we set the Lord before us, we are in his presence. We are inviting his presence. He's everywhere, but we can, for some reason, stiff arm him out of here. And so when we always set the Lord before us, what we are doing is we are coming into his presence, and therefore David would conclude at the very end of Psalm 16, in your presence are pleasures forevermore. So our joy, our pleasure, our ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction is all linked, inseparably linked to living for the glory of God. This is the chief end of man. This is what we are created for. This is what lasts. So how do we do this? What does this look like to always set the Lord before us? What does this look like in our life? Well, I think one important point to make is that in order for us to live for the glory of God is that we have to first determine to live for this purpose. To live for the glory of God, we have to live with, with this purpose in mind. You see, you rarely accomplish something that you're not predetermined to pursue. You rarely accomplish anything in life without a predetermined focus to do it. You rarely hit a target you're not aiming at. So when we think about the glory of God and living for the glory of God, we cannot really glorify God unless we are consciously aiming to do so. Now, yes, God will always get the glory, but he, doesn't, he may not get it from you. The question is, can we and will we ascribe him the glory that he is due? I think there are other ways that I'm just going to go through very quickly of how we can go about glorifying God, how we can go about setting him always before us. I think one of the ways we can do that is just by giving God praise. We do this through, we do this through songs. 
We, we do this through our conversations or potentially through our conversations. Again, ultimately, we can just give praise to God. David says in Psalm 50, the one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. So giving thanks is a very common way to glorify God. You're saying, God, thank you for blessing me. It's not just me that I've blessed. It's not just, I, I'm not joy-filled because I did this for myself. I'm giving you thanks because in your mercy and in your grace, you have blessed me. And therefore, God is glorified when we offer him thanks for what he has done for us. Could I just take a time out a second and go, what reason do you have to give thanks to God right now? Go ahead. In all things, tell me one thing. Breathing. Yeah, isn't that something we kind of take for granted sometimes? I'm sure glad we do it, though. Our heart keeps pumping. We don't will it so. It just does it. What are, tell me, let's, church, let's encourage one another. What are some ways in which we can give thanksgiving to God and therefore glorify God even now? Friendships, yeah. Oh my goodness, there's a lot of things, isn't there? There's more. He'll keep it coming. What else is there? Salvation, absolutely. Family, you bet. See. Life? Yeah, yeah. You didn't choose your life into being, did you? God chose your life into being. What was in the back there? Hmm, yeah. What are some other ways we can give thanks to God? Eternal life, yes. Yeah. Do you know... The act of thanksgiving is a, it's like a muscle that we have to condition and practice. I think as people, now some are better at this than others, but in general, when we don't exercise that thanksgiving muscle, it doesn't just pour out thanksgiving. It does pour out complaint, right? We're really good at that. That muscle is always strong. It does pour out that muscle of discontentment is very alive and well, right? But that muscle of thanksgiving is something that we have to consciously pursue. And when we consciously pursue it, because again, as was said, even the fact that we are sitting here and alive today is because of God's mercy and grace. Because his goodness to us that brings glory to God. So we glorify God by praising him both in our song, both in our words, with another. Can I just encourage you this? Perhaps the conversations you consciously kind of pursue and that ensue after the service, perhaps you can make it a goal in the back of your mind going, how am I going to glorify God in this? How am I going to set the Lord always before me in this? How am I going to give thanksgiving to God, ascribing him praise and glory in, in this conversation so that when this conversation ceases, we've brought much attention to our Savior. There are other ways. We have a, by rehearsing his attributes. We're encouraged in Scripture to rehearse his attributes in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Dwell on these things. The word there is really to be consumed with these things. It's interesting. The things we think about 
are always shaping us. The things we dwell on are always forming us. Justin Earley said this, who wrote The Common Rule. He says, we become what we pay attention to. The question is, what are we paying attention to? Are we dwelling on the things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable? Or many other things that we're bombarded with on a daily basis? So we glorify God by rehearsing his goodness, by rehearsing his attributes, by rehearsing what he has done for us. We also glorify God by bearing fruit. Jesus says this in John 15, this is, this is my, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God has saved you not only to glorify his name, but he's indwelt you, he's empowered you by his spirit, not so that you can serve yourself, but so that you can serve him and his church, so that you can edify the, the, the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's bearing fruit God has gifted you, he's empowered you, not for your purposes, but for his purposes through you. And any, any tree or any branch that does not bear fruit, God cuts out. So bearing fruit is a way we can glorify God. We glorify God by obeying him. Obviously bearing fruit is a, a form of obeying him, but obeying him in general. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think one of the most simplistic but yet profound ways in which we understand glorifying God is just by our obedience. As a parent, and I know as many parents in here, you understand that. It's great when your kids are going, thank you for listening. I asked you to do something, you did it. Thank you. And our Father in heaven is also going, can you just do what I'm asking you to do because trust me, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. I think conversely, however, we don't just glorify God by our obedience, but we also glorify God in our confession you see, we're not always obedient. And so God is even glorified when we humble ourselves before him and repent of our sins, knowing full well and believing in his promise that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from how much? All unrighteousness. He loves to forgive us. He loves to restore us. He's not the ogre in the sky that sometimes we kind of cringe at, like, oh, he's probably so mad at me. No, he wants to forgive. He wants you to experience fully, uninhibited, his love for us. Sin always takes that. It always distorts. It blinds. It confuses. But repentance brings us right back into his presence. Not because he left us, but because we can't be aware of it in our sin. So we glorify by God by even confessing your sin. We glorify God by submitting to his will. Even as Jesus says, Father, if you, if it, you are willing, remove this cup from me. Again, Jesus, knowing what he came to earth to do, still struggled in his humanly flesh. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be rejected by my father. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
So submission is an act of obedience that brings glory to God. We glorify God by trusting Him. Remember in Psalm 16, the context there. The secret to David's joy and contentment was that in the midst of his great struggle and trials, he always set the Lord before him. And because of doing that, he was in the presence of God continually and therefore was able to conclude, in your presence there are pleasures forevermore. We glorify God by our contentment. This is a big one for me. And so I I include it now for us because it's easy to think about what you don't have. Again, Thanksgiving is a is a muscle that we have to condition, right? What's the opposite of Thanksgiving? Complaining. A lack of contentment. Paul says this, I've learned to live with a lot, I've learned to live with a little, I've learned to abound, I've learned to live in just the most humble of circumstances, in hunger, abundance, need, it doesn't matter. I've learned to to live in any kind of situation, any kind of scenario. I have learned, he says, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And he goes on to say a few verses later, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So when we are discontent, when we are unthankful, What we are saying, whether we realize it or not, we're saying, God, you have not come through. You don't love me. You don't give me good things. You haven't provided for me as you promised. You haven't come through. What we are saying is, God, we're really blaming God. We're diminishing his goodness. I know in my own life, I feel like the, the Lord has patiently helped me come full circle and help me realize and even give thanks for the fact that God has not given me everything I wanted. He has not given me everything I asked for because he loves me and he knows what's best for me. Yes, we're called to bring everything to him in prayer, but only he knows ultimately what's good for me. So he didn't make me wealthy probably because he knew that I would not be, I would not do well. That proverb, Lord, give me just enough that I might glorify you. Don't give me too much that I walk away from you. Don't give me too little that I might steal, but give me what I need. So we glorify God in so many different ways. But the conclusion in all this is, as David acknowledges in Psalm 16, I've always set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Whether you eat, Paul says, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Mm-hmm.